This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. You're listening to The Church Boys Free Fall Q&A. It's Billy Hollowell here with The Church Boys, and I have Ptolemy Tompkins and Tyler Bedos here with me. How are you guys doing? Good. How are you? Great. Good. So, Tyler, we talked, gosh, it was probably about, about a month ago now, and we talked about your story, which we'll, we'll get deeper into. But how did the two of you, you have a new book out. How did you guys get together for this book? Well, I guess I'll answer that. But I was, uh, after my experiences with rescuing baby Lily and, and the voice we heard and the feelings I got, I started to get emails from all over the world saying, um, this changed my life, uh, all over, Germany, U.S., Canada, I mean, and just it was blowing me away, phone calls and emails. So I really started kind of thinking, if I could change somebody with this story, or because or, my outlook really changed with this. Um, I was doubting God until this river incident, and then I really started to realize I shouldn't have, and that was when I was able to contact a literary agent, and she said, hey, I got this guy that uh, did Proof of Heaven that would be phenomenal for this book, and uh, that's how we hooked up. She called him, and, and he thought about it for a brief time. And I was down in my basement um, working on another story, and my wife, Holly Hughes, who's editor of Angels on Earth magazine, um, called up. They just finished the weekly meeting where they discussed stories. I used to work there. And she said, I can't, I can't believe they're not taking this story. This is such an amazing story. And she sent it up to me. And, you know, they didn't take it because it was too sad or something. And I read it and I thought, you know, that's really a shame. Because it's not just a sad story. It's a profoundly tragic story. But it had this immediate atmosphere of, of power to it. Like, it was so strange. Um, and it was about an hour after that that I got a call from uh, Jen at this literary agency who introduced herself and said, uh, we've got one of those policemen here, and we think maybe there's a book, and, you know, you worked on Proof of Heaven, why don't we call it Proof of Angel? So this was the same day? This was the same, like, two within hours. An, within, stretch. like, a two-hour. Boom. That's bizarre. Yeah. So I said, that sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what are the odds, right, out of all the days that that would be the same day that you had just had that conversation? My wife doesn't always call me with stories, but I think this reminded her of the kind of story I would have liked back when I was there because I was never afraid of the stories that had a dark aspect because I think if you want to really have a powerful story, something dark is okay if you find your way toward the light at the end of it. Because everybody understands human tragedy. Um, it's not something people have to scratch their heads about. Everybody deals with it, and it connects you immediately to a story. But then what? Do we just leave it at that? Or do we find some, without cheapening the tragedy, can we find a larger meaning in it? You know, without in any way saying, what happened wasn't tragic because, you know, it was. You have to have total right, respect. Right, 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 right. Yeah, absolutely. And not give it some fluffy, oh, everything's okay like that. But can you wrestle with it and somehow find maybe some larger meaning? And I used to love working on stories like that. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those stories, as you said, it, it, it's this horrible tragedy. But then this piece of it comes out, right? This thing happens that now everybody is looking at it 
and they're seeing the tragedy, but they're also seeing, okay, well, something else happened here, and now there's a book, and now everybody's talking about what happened, right? Um, how have, Tyler, how have your views, and you talked about the struggle in the last interview we did, and you mentioned it here, with, with God and sort of the doubts, how has your life changed after that event? It's been remarkable. It's uh, really started to kind of ponder what I heard and what I felt that day, and it was really since then that things just kind of just just changed for me. Did a 180. Um, I don't doubt or doubt God anymore, and I look at the positives in life. Um, I was so focused, I think, on negatives that it was eating me alive, and so now I just I look at positives and and uh, kind of look for God around me. It's been great. And and that event, you know, we've sort of alluded to pieces of it. I just want to recap it, you know, so people remember. And we're going to include the other interview we did as well. But you know, you this dramatic rescue. And there were two other police officers with you, correct? Three, three other, three other three, police yeah. officers. And you arrive at the scene, a car submerged in in cold water, finding a mother who had been deceased and also a baby who was alive and who is doing very well now. This is. How many how many months after now? We're more than a year out from this. Right? We're about one year on March seventh. Okay. It'll be a year, and she's phenomenal. Like nothing's happened. I mean, she's two year old girl just getting into everything. And I've talked to her parents and uh, her dad and her um, family, and they've been they've been great, supportive, and she's awesome. She's doing great. Now, how and this is something we also talked about. How have the other um, police officers, those involved in the case, who weren't involved in the book, how have they felt about the book? Have they had a chance to read the book? Yeah, I think I think there's been some mixed reactions. I think overall it's been very positive. Um, I think we've had some that uh, aren't quite sure what you're trying to do or, or what you're going to, you know, maybe take credit for or not take credit for. But I think overall it's been positive. I've really tried to just approach it as, you know, I hope this can make a difference and I can give credit where credit's due. And um, I think that was the bottom line for me. And, and tell me, what's the biggest thing that convinces you? I guess the biggest piece of evidence for angels in your mind, out of anything you've looked at or seen, and in particular maybe details of this case? Well, to give sort of a silly but accurate answer, people see them all the time. Um, you know, if I were asked, what's, what do I think is the most convincing angel experience? I would answer, it's the experience your Uncle Harry had that he's never told you about. If you throw a rock, you'll find somebody who knows somebody who had something strange happen one day when they were stuck in a very dangerous part of a highway and there was nobody around and somebody showed up and changed the tire and left. This kind of stuff is um, its what materialist scientists call anecdotal material. It's everywhere. Um, and I know I would say to listeners, I mean, if you're, uh, if you're dubious about it, conduct an experiment. Ask the next three people you meet whether they have had anything happen to them that has a vaguely angelic flavor to it. And by angelic, I don't mean wings and halos and pixie stardust. I mean just some situation where you were helped in a way that really doesn't line up with the law of averages. It could involve a human being, or it could involve just something happening, something being where it wasn't supposed to be at just the right moment. These experiences are everywhere. A lot of our society trains us to ignore them. And when you're trained to ignore something, it's very easy not to see it. 
Yeah, it's, that's a really good response. And it's interesting because it's easy to sort of dismiss these things and say, oh, well, there's no way that's true. But, you know, the, I guess the, the follow-up question to that is, well, then how do you know that? How do you know that all these people can't be crazy, right? That's the thing. Um, and this is a scientific way of proceeding as well. If you have kind of a funny result in a scientific experiment and it's a little sketchy, but somebody got it, mm, but it's not always, it doesn't always come out, but it's there. And then, lo and behold, somebody else talks to you about the same thing happening, and somebody else, and somebody else, and somebody else, but you still can't pin it down. If you have, and there are a lot of scientists who would agree with this, if you have an overwhelming amount of examples of something that's a little fishy in terms of results, the smart thing to do is not to ignore it, is to say, well, we can't quite pin this down, but maybe it's pointing to something we don't know. And religion and science are all about the same thing. What's real, what's true. You know, that's what they're about. Right, yeah. They're different approaches to the same thing. Um, scientists who are not interested in what's real and what's true aren't real scientists. And I think truly religious people are the same way. If you have too much of an agenda, if you've got a setup in your head that you are not going to change no matter what, well, you're not truly open to God and you're not truly open to what science means either. No, that's a great point. And let me ask you, Tyler, so what do you say to the atheist who says, you know, the Richard Dawkins, whoever, who comes and says, there's no way this happened, you're crazy, you're making it up? That's really tough. That's a tough way to, to respond because for me, it's, uh, I mean, it's hard to describe the feelings you got along with what I heard and what I saw in the recovery of Lily and, and her survival that doctors have told me over and over again shouldn't have happened. I mean, with all the elements and things. And so for me, it's easy to say it's, it's impossible to not, how do you, how do you doubt God in that specific situation? Because the only explanation for that voice uh, would have been an angel, wouldn't have been someone from a higher power that, that showed up to help us. So I don't think, uh, obviously I can't give a scientific answer. I'm not educated like that, but I can say that uh, that it's 100% it was an angel that day that, that helped me. Well, they can't say on the other side 100% that these things That's aren't true. real, right? And they, they act like they can, but you know, Richard Dawkins can't prove that these things are not real. He can just say that he doesn't think they are. I heard a fascinating interview with Christopher Hitchens shortly before he died. Um, I believe it was Anderson Cooper. And... Christopher Hitchens, I'm not a fan of his, but I found him very heroic in the interview. He was a guy who was about to die, was under, I think, a lot of chemotherapy, whatever it was. He's not in good shape. And, you know, really a very brave interview. Um, and I, I salute atheists who die bravely because it takes a lot of guts. I mean, they don't believe in anything. They think they're going to blip out like a TV set that's turned off. Um, I mean, I feel fortunate in having faith that that's not the case because it's pretty radically terrifying if you really think that's the reality. Um, but what troubled me in this interview was, um, and I'm you know, paraphrasing, but Anderson Cooper said something to the effect of, would anything change your mind about 
what you said about the non-reality of the spiritual world and importance of a materialist perspective, etc. And Hitchens said no, and he said, the only way I could see myself changing that opinion is if I was in such pain or in delusional because of the drugs and the pain in my very last minutes, I might say something. And I want to emphasize that that should not be listened to. I'm paraphrasing here, but he said something along those lines. And I found it both rather brave, but also very troubling because he is being profoundly dogmatic. He is saying, at the end of my life, when something is going to happen to me that has never happened to me before, I am not going to change my mind about it. That's not scientific. Right. Yeah, and it's funny, the other, the other thing too, just the way that atheists sometimes, and especially the new atheists, talk new about atheists. it. It's sort of like, well, you know, we don't even have, it's like, okay, well, if I do die and I meet God, I'm sure he'll have mercy on me if there is one. I don't think there is one, but you know, it's almost like this lack of interest in even wanting to know. It's like, well, maybe, but on every other issue, they're so definitive when it comes to science. But yet, this issue, they don't really seem to have. It's very fascinating, and it shows how these are such personal matters, because I have always been interested in this question. And there have, you know, I know many people, a lot of my friends, um, most of my friends, could care less about this question. And it's like whether you like pistachio ice cream or not. It doesn't have to do with whether you've examined the facts in a large... Because you don't read the literature of the other side. Um, there's fantastic literature showing that the spiritual world is a reality to be dealt with. Most of the materialist scientists don't read it. There's an enormous body of materialist literature that says everything that has ever been pushed by anybody religious or spiritual is nonsense. Well, guess what? Quite frankly, I don't read that stuff either. <laughs> I admit it. Because really, I'm as dogmatic as they are. I'm not going to change my mind. If somebody's going to come along and say there is nothing but atoms bouncing around in space, and they're going to bounce around until the sun dies, and then everything's, you know, heat death, everything's just going to turn into a big tapioca pudding of nothing, and consciousness isn't anything real or substantial, Nobody's going to change my mind on that. So I, I guess I'm just like Hitchens in my way. It's but but it's harder. To, but it's harder to ignore something that is a theory, an idea that there's something there, than it is to ignore saying, "Well, there's nothing there." Right? I guess like if somebody says to me, "There's there's this whole world out there, right, that exists after you die," that is way more interesting, and you want to know than somebody saying, "Well, there's nothing there." I can. Some people. It's so. I weird. guess. Some yeah, I guess. Don't care. But they care about it. Yeah, they care about everything. I guess my point is they care about any other potential scientific thing that could be out there, right, that we can't see. But yet they don't really care about wanting to explore that more. It is, it is, it, I don't know the answer, but it leads to a really profound uh, question about the nature of us as human beings. Because this is a real divide, and the people who care really care, and the people who don't care kind of don't care with the same passion that the people care, care. It's like yeah. really something that goes deep. And you go one way or you go the other. And it's a fascinating rarity when somebody really does change their mind, which happens. But 
Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, look, there's we love telling stories about people who I think conversion stories are fascinating. I think, totally. yeah, I mean, especially totally. the the college professor atheist who becomes a Christian. Yeah, you know, those are the stories that always really shock me. And yeah. there are deconversion stories too that are that are interesting that are out there. But but I think those stories where you just go from being over here all the way to the other side, that's fascinating to me. Um, let me ask you guys both, and and tell I'll start with you. What what do you want people to take away from the book? Really, I've said the whole time. I think, I think hope. I think if people are in a situation where I was, which is a dark spot, um, based on like I've talked to you about a lot of calls and different things I had, negativity towards police. That this gave me hope that to know that there's a God out there, to know there's a higher power. Um, I may not know him exactly of, of how I feel like I should, but I feel like I have a good relationship with God now, and so I think that's the main thing I would like is people to just come out with hope. Very good. And what would you say? Um, I think this shows up in the book um, in a discussion with um, Jill, um, Jennifer's sister, um, who I started talking with late in the book. Um, We had a back and forth about what the book was really all about and what was I doing. And I said, what I think is the most fascinating thing, and what people, if they grasp this, there would be so fewer arguments, is that the world is a much larger, much stranger, much more wonderful place than many people give it for credit for being. However, that doesn't mean that everything's going to go great all the time. We don't know what's going on down here fully. You know, it's it's St. Paul, you know, through a glass darkly. You know, through a glass darkly are some of the most important words anybody has ever said. That's how we see on this level. Things aren't going to make sense here. And they really, really don't make sense. I mean, I did so many stories of guideposts. I did one story of, of a couple, all four of their children were killed in a car wreck. I mean, what do you do with that? Do you say, well, that just shows that God is right where you want them to be. (laughs) They are unanswerable. Right. And people who have easy answers for this, whether they are Christians who have easy answers or New Agers who say, ah, wow, this must have been past karma that is just working out. No. Don't insult the world and the reality of the world and the reality of God with a simple one-dimensional explanation. Just acknowledge the enormity of this adventure we're on and use that to give you strength when things happen that you have no answer for. Yeah, I mean, look, somebody could argue in this case, you know, why didn't, why wasn't there a sign that saved the mother earlier, but she died on impact, I would say. I mean, in a situation like this, you know, why, why wasn't the other person saved? Why was it, and you can go around and around with these things, but we don't know the answers to all, to them clearly. I mean, we, we don't know, but the fact of the matter is something Really, I mean, this is a story that happened in an isolated incident, this anecdotal you know, incident that now everyone is talking about. There's something to that, too, I mean, some would say. This is an absolutely horrible thing that happened, yet which is also tinged with this mystery and meaning. And right. that's exactly right. what I was just talking right, right, right. about. There's no, you know, the last thing I would want to do is cheaply explain away the death of that young woman. There is no cheaply explaining it away. It's horrible. I thought about that every day when I was writing the book. Like, where do I get off writing about something 
as horrific as this? How do I write about it without cheapening it, without making it seem like I'm taking something so heavy, so real for the people involved, and turning it into cotton candy? That's the last thing I wanted to do. Yeah, I don't think it feels. I don't think it feels that way at all. I think it's. I think it's a complicated situation in which you have. Thank God, this miracle at the end of it, where the baby Lily is sa- yeah. is is saved, right? I mean that that people really can't explain that you can't explain. Yeah. You know where where this voice. I mean, it, it's a fascinating story, which is why I think so many people were attracted to it and have been attracted to trying to understand that. Um, and it also points to those unexplained. Why do people suffer? Why do Why do bad things happen? Yeah, you know, which is the question everyone's been asking since the beginning of time, right? Um, Job got the ball going pretty well. With it, right? <laughs> so, well, let me. I want to ask you, Tyler, a couple questions about police because I know we were talking a little bit before the interview, and there there has been so much, really, the last year. I think that where this has kind of stepped up, but so much anti police sentiment across the country, and when these. Um, anecdotal incidents happen, it explodes, blows up into a very big um, thing. You have protests, and I think police are looked at differently maybe in some places today than they were 30 years ago, 20 years ago. What's that like for you as a police officer working out there daily? It's very tough. It's uh, It wears on you. At first, you try not to uh, pay attention to it, but then it's just slowly, every time you put on your uniform every day, it's just like... It's almost exhausting because you don't know quite what's going to happen day to day. But you try to block it out. But I know, I mean, 95%, 99% of these officers I know are great people. I've worked with with many different officers, races. It it don't matter. It's it's frustrating to see how much they love the community, how much they love protecting and helping people to get uh, maybe one makes a bad decision and it's blown up to every single officer as, you know, uh, whatever it may be. so it's tough. It's been a tough road to try to, to stay positive with. Well, especially, I mean, like every day it seems like there's another, every week there's another incident that happens. And it's, a lot of these incidents are very clear cut. Some of them are not. They're very complicated. And, you know, I would imagine it's very easy for, and I'm not excusing anything, that's, but it's very easy to sort of say, oh, well, look what that cop did. I can't believe this. Then it is to sort of question and put yourself in that situation of what is it like to be a police officer? Right. You know, we could talk about what it's like to live in certain communities and we should, we should question that and wonder about it, but we should probably also question on the other side of what it's like to be a police officer. Yeah. It's tough. Cause you're just in a, you know, you're in a decision where you want to go home to your family and a lot don't. I had a, a friend last year that was killed in line of duty. And so it's hard to really have all these people saying, crucify you basically with, with words and, and whatever it may be, but yet, they're, they call you when they need you, and, and it's a tough thing. And I'm not going to sit and say that 100% of police officers are good. None of them make bad decisions because that would be that would be a lie because we all make you know bad decisions at times. But overall, I, I think the general you know positive. It, it's generally for me. I think they try to make the right decisions and do what's right. It's like every profession. You have bad teachers. You have bad right. 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 You know, whenever there's a public service field, it seems like everyone, especially in the media, loves to sort of like focus in. Oh, well, this teacher did this. And I mean, there was one day I was on one particular outlet, and there were like seven bad teacher stories, and I was like, this is really not. Yeah, it paints a picture right. that ninety percent of teachers are having inappropriate relationships with children, right? Exactly. And it's like, well, that is not true. It's happening. There are bad teachers out there. Like there's people who are, who are acting badly in every, in every field, bad reporters, bad, you know. Um, but yeah, it's fascinating how that, how that has happened. And you also have this element of celebrities kind of coming into and, and 
taking stands on this and um, and movements that are saying certain things about about police. What do you think some of the misconceptions are outside of what we just talked about about cops? I think I think that uh, there's a lot of stuff with celebrities or different things. And I won't mention names, but people that oh, cops are racist and uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and different things. Where yes, I'm a white guy. I'm a, I'm a cop, but at no point I, I have friends that are black in the police force, uh, Asian, Hispanic. So it doesn't that doesn't mean anything to me. And I know each one of them, um, regardless of color, does what what they can to protect the community. So I think that's such a tough. It hurts when you see someone uh, with such a powerful uh, media presence, like a celebrity or something, that comes out and says a specific view on cops that's negative. It's tough because. Uh, you know, all their followers then start hating police. And so you start getting a, a big uh, reaction. So I guess for me, it's just, uh, like you said, before really um, criticizing what they do, it's really got to put yourself in their shoes and know that they're really trying to protect you and, and they have families at home they want to come home to, but yet they put their lives on the line. Um, yes, they sign up for it. I signed up for it myself, but I think it's tough and it's important to understand the um, significance of that. Well, listen, this has been great. I appreciate you guys coming down. Any final comments about the book, about um, anything that maybe we haven't gotten to that you wanted to talk about? We're excited. I hope it's a excited release day today. Uh, huh? uh, this is my first time talking about it, and it's fun to talk about so far, so thank you. Yeah, well, I think, and, and you've looked at so many different fun elements of, you know, the, the afterlife, which is a whole other, you know, discussion that we could have um, that I think is fascinating and yeah, for you, I guess one last question for you. In looking and exploring all these different elements of, of faith, um, how has how has your personal view, your personal views changed on some of these elements over time? Are they more reinforced? Are there things you have questions about that you Probably maybe didn't? reinforced. Um, C.S. Lewis had a friend named Owen Barfield, uh, who was also a writer who uh, did not become become famous the way C.S. Lewis did, but. Um, Barfield said uh, there's two kinds of writers. There's writers who write the same book over and over again, and writers who write a different book each time. Barfield said C.S. Lewis always wrote something new. And Barfield said, as for me, I write the same book over and over. And I love that because that's what I am. I just write the same book over and over. And it, it's always got the same you know, message at the end, and that message is something out there is is way bigger than we immediately see and ultimately it's way smarter than us and way more good than we are and if we remember that we can make it through i kind of bumped into that in my 20s and i've just sort of been trying to find ways to get paid to say it again and again because <laughs> it just seems like the message that i am around to keep repeating. I think it's a good message. And it might be a message that people need more and more. It seems like the world oh, so becomes much. a little bit a so little much. bit more chaotic every day, right? Um, and these things kind of bring people back, I think, and they're good reminders for people um, of, of what is going on, what is what really matters, I guess, in a world yeah. where... Yeah. And, and, and I think it's so important to stop arguing about the small points between this church, that church, the other church, and just say, wait a minute, is there one thing we agree upon? Right, exactly. You know? And there is. There is a landscape. The spiritual world is like a landscape. Picture it like a national park or something. 
so that nobody who describes it is going to do a perfect job of, of describing it. Go to, go to Yosemite, come back and say, I have the only correct description <laughs> of Yosemite. It, it, you know, and right. the spiritual world is a lot bigger than Yosemite and a lot more beautiful. So, of course, there are going to be differences. And in this world where everybody is arguing, try to remember that.